I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Alexis Ball. Alexis, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Daniel. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. Now, you're an oceanographer, right? I am an oceanographer, yes. So, what does that mean? Do you study blue whales? (laughs) Oceanography is a very broad um, discipline, and it can really be defined in a textbook as someone that studies ocean systems and processes that are rooted in biological, chemical, physical, and geological principles. So often most people associate oceanography with like marine biology, whales. Um, And so it's not so much that as marine biologists would study a species or a group of species and more their physiology, the species itself. Whereas an oceanographer would ask, how does this whale interact with its environment and how does the environment interact with the whale um so it's it's more of the processes that's very broad uh what do you specialize in i specialize in biological oceanography so and to go even further i focus on southern ocean zooplankton and their contribution to carbon export which (laughs) That becomes a lot more um, siloed, so it's more specific. But yes, I mean, all in all, it's it's still a pretty broad subject. That's really cool. Thank you. Yeah. At what stage in your career are you at? I am a student. Um, my email signature says PhD candidate, so I love to say that that's what I'm in because advancing to candidacy was a bit of a nightmare. Um but yes, I, I am a student through and through. Wonderful. <laughs> I'm, there are many gauntlets to run in academia, so. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully this is your last one. <laughs> uh, what did you study before you became a PhD candidate? So I actually, my my background and what I studied previously um, is pretty nonlinear to where I am today. I started by studying environmental science. Um, I actually did my bachelor's at Loyola University in Chicago, so nowhere near the ocean at all. Um, I never took an oceanography course until I was in my master's where I studied environmental science and policy at Johns Hopkins. And yeah, and then, I mean, I've always been fascinated with ocean life, with science, and I started kind of volunteering and getting out there, getting more um, familiar with what research does exist and where I could potentially specialize. And so I, I was pursuing research opportunities during my master's that ultimately led me to where I am today for focusing on oceanography. <clears throat> Excellent. Um, and what is it about the ocean that caught your attention? What is it about the ocean? 
Um, the first, <laughs> what I want to say is, aren't there like negative ions that come off that draws people to the ocean or something? But I'm not sure what that what that actually is. But I have always been drawn to water and bodies of water. And even when I, I was growing up, we had a river that ran through the backyard of, of my um, childhood house in Michigan. And you could always find me in this river, um, just exploring the life underneath the water. And when I first got the opportunity to scuba dive, I thought to myself, oh, this is, this is a whole nother world. And it was a place in which I could, I felt so alien that it just, my curiosity exploded. And so that is when I got my, I had my first opportunity to visit the ocean when I was young, it just was a game changer. And I don't know exactly what it was as much as I, I was just drawn to it. Now you've got uh, the Little Mermaid stuck in my head. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, you could call me that. I find that um, most career paths tend to be a bit circuitous. Um, we very rarely end up where we intended to be. Um, you mentioned yourself that you changed direction. Um, have you faced any setbacks or uh, any uh, non-linear progressions? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's wild. If you would have asked me five years ago if I would be here today, I would not. I would not believe you. Um, I even though my my paths changed, they did always kind of build on each other. I didn't know that environmental science was even a field of study you could you could study in in college. I'm a first generation student and so going into into college, I was very much blind. I went into it pre-med thinking, okay, you know, I think I want to help people. I'll focus on pre-med. I took one like theology and nature course or something. And <laughs> I will still remember that class for like probably for the rest of my life because that is what changed everything for me and made me realize, oh, this is a field of study I can actually do. Now, so I focused on environmental science and and fell in love with it. But I really struggled during my undergrad. And this is something that I will have to live with for the rest of my life because what is on paper, you always have to explain, especially when you're applying to jobs, other academic positions, anything like that. But my grades and how I, you know, how I performed in undergrad was not indicative of who I am today. And that is largely because I was diagnosed with anxiety. I was questioned if I had dyslexia. And then I was later diagnosed with ADHD. And when I got those diagnosis, diagnoses, I, it changed everything for me. And I was able to see clearly how I wanted to move forward, how I wanted to tackle these learning curves. And yeah, so that was a huge setback. And it's still a setback that I have to explain, believe it or not. And, but it's okay because 
I learned a lot about myself through that. And I'm here where I am today because of it. I can imagine that, like you said, uh, having those diagnoses, uh, while they are challenging and present extra challenges, uh, are the reason why you are here today. Because if you'd gone undiagnosed, um, you wouldn't have known uh, how to proceed. And I'm glad you also mentioned that you're a first-generation student. Uh, I think that that's something that is really underappreciated as an extra challenge. Yeah, and I don't think... I didn't realize the weight of it until... Probably until I was in grad school. And what's especially eye-opening as a first-generation student is how you're really learning how to do all of this by yourself. You don't have any parents or anyone that had done it previously that can guide you. This becomes very evident when it comes to like applying for funding. How like how to know what loans to take out to pay for your school, things like this that as a first generation student, you have to learn how to do that on your own. And that's been difficult. But I also pride myself on the fact that I just, you know, I, I keep learning, I keep going, I keep tackling these problems, these these challenges. And yeah, I'm very, I'm very fortunate to be where I am today because of all of it, or regardless of it all. Very often you don't even know which questions you need to be asking or who to ask. Yes, yes. Now focusing on something a little uh, more cheerful. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, sorry to get dark No, no worries. (laughs) Um, Have you made any discoveries that you'd care to share, either discoveries um, personally or for the world? When I was in my master's, I had the opportunity to work with um, Anand Ganandesikan, who is a physical oceanographer at Johns Hopkins, as well as Marie Alperdal. And they really took me under their wing. And I, I did research on oceanography for the first time, so it was incredible. Um, one of the discoveries we made I won't get too into the weeds because it's it's pretty um, complicated, but we focused on Earth system models, and we were specifically looking at how ocean mixing is represented and sim- simulated in these in these models. And the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change, uses models to um, project climate or CO2 um, perturbations to see how it will change going in the future and will thus allow us to prepare, adapt, mitigate. Um, We looked at how these models are simulating ocean mixing and one of the novel um, things we found was that when it comes to oxygen in the oceans, it's very dependent on how the ocean mixing parameters are set up in the model and you can either underestimate or very much overestimate how oxygen in the oceans will change because of this parameter so it's that's to really boil it down um, and try to put it in layman's term which is really difficult Um, but that was a small nugget a small discovery that um 
I was I made with the two of them during my master's and I can't say I've made any new discoveries since but we're on track to do that <laughs> I like how you started that off by saying not to get into the weeds but <laughs> I tried not to get to be fair you research southern oceanic plankton so you literally get into the weeds every day <laughs> yes yes truly I dive deep into the water column. <laughs> and what is it about that algae that you look at? So I'm looking at zooplankton species. And so these are the species that are, um, well, they're carnivores and they are well, carnivores and herbivores, but they're moving through the water column. Sorry, the zooplankton's a carnivore? Zooplankton, they, yeah, they can eat other, other zooplankton. Are are they not plants? That's phytoplankton. Oh. Yep. Okay, so it it's not actually like plankton plankton, right? Right. So there's oh. there's phytoplankton which are um plants and then there's zooplankton which are animals. This is a little pet shop of horrors here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't tell you how often I have to um explain that to people because I mean it's it's completely fine that's it's not commonly known and but what is really special about zooplankton is what what I'm focusing on is a specific behavioral trait. Um, these these really small species are known to perform this daily migration. And so every 24 hours, they migrate from the deep ocean anywhere from, ooh, let's say, 300 to 600 meters all the way up to the surface. And upon sundown, and and then they migrate back up, back down into the water column when the sun rises. And so this, on terms of biomass, is the largest migration on the globe. And it's fascinating to me because it's thought to be a huge component of carbon export. Why is this important? Well, carbon export in the ocean is responsible for mitigating the effects of anthropogenic climate change. As CO2 emissions continue to rise in the atmosphere, it's these little guys that help mitigate those effects by drawing it down and bringing it to the deep sea. Yes. Yeah, that's to put it plainly. And I, when I first learned about this Dial vertical migration is what they call it. Um, I kind of became obsessed, and so that yeah, that's that's largely what I'm focusing on in the Southern Ocean. That initially sounds quite uh, mundane, but when you explain it like that, it's actually really exciting. You're studying how to save the world. Yeah, I mean, really, like I don't mean to be too grandiose, but it's uh, coming from policy, it was really, really important to me that I do something that isn't conducted in a silo. I have to make sure that it's contributing to better understanding how our earth is changing and how we can better preserve these environments for our own sake. And this it it has it has a part it has a role in all of this and so i'm still trying to piece those pieces together but it's there 
I just have to look really deeply into it. You'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm only in my second year, so we have time. Do you do any field work? Um, I, I did some field work in my undergrad when I volunteered. Um, I was tagging whales in the North Sea uh, of, of Scotland, and that was just that was one of my like volunteer trips where I was like, I need to go see what kind of um, opportunities are out there with regards to oceanography. Is this something I want to pursue? But that was just like about a month thing. I really haven't done um, much like at sea work where people stay out there for weeks to months. But my first expedition will be uh, is coming up later this year from about the first week of October to the third week of November. I will be going on an expedition to the Southern Ocean with um, the Alfred Wagner Institute in Germany. And they have an icebreaker called Polar Stern. And so we will be traveling from Cape Town to the Falkland Islands. And yeah, we'll be just going straight against the <laughs> the craziest current in the world in looking at zooplankton. How do you tag a whale? Do you harpoon a, a tracker into it or? <laughs> <laughs> it has to be done very ethically, of course. We don't want to hurt them, but it's um we essentially, you know, on a boat, there's like there's a small ladder that allows the person that's tagging to be a little bit higher than than the person driving the boat but it's basically just a long stick with like a um what would you call that something that suctions like one of those like round circles not a plunger but it looks a lot like a plunger but the suction is going to come off so you basically just it's this um small piece of plastic that suctions onto the whale and it doesn't stay there long it's mm, maybe an hour tops it allows you to see the whale you know its depth and and just kind of see what its movements are like and then we go and retrieve the tracker so it doesn't hurt them um probably don't even <laughs> realize it's there because it's so small compared to the whole body of the whale but um yeah, that's that's essentially how that's done. It's like a little remora. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> and when you go to the south uh, this October, you said? October, yes. Uh, why are you going against the current? Well, so the Antarctic Polar Front is um, one of the currents in the, in the Southern Ocean, and it goes from west to east. So... We're basically, because we'll be leaving from Cape Town, we'll be going against it. And that's, I mean... Oh, it's purely geographical. It's not scientific or... Yes, yes. Right. No, no, no. Yep, yep. Yeah, it's purely geographical because we'll be stopping at um, South Georgia, uh, which lies in between um, Cape Town and the Falkland Islands. It's a little bit further west. Um but yeah, so then that allows us to stop there. I imagine it would make it a little more choppy. Yes, that's what I'm told. Uh, I am not looking forward to being seasick. I was going to ask, do you get seasick? Um, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I do, but I'm just going to go with yes. 
so I can prepare for that. It's good to know, though, that you can be so far along in your oceanographic career and um, not know if you get seasick. I know, I know. It's kind of wild. You can do a lot of research on dry land. Uh, yeah, yeah. The first time for everything. Now, you've paint, you're clearly passionate about your work, um, but what is it, uh, what's the best part of your work? Oh, goodness. Um, I just, I just love being able to explore my own curiosities. Having the freedom to do that is, is amazing. Um, I kind of catch myself sometimes when I'm just, I'm reading a paper or I'm like looking at data and while it all may seem like meh to most people, I just, I love learning and I like solving puzzles, um, big and small. And that's, that's really what research is. That's what science is. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, that, that is my favorite part is just having the freedom to, to choose what puzzle you want to try to solve and then try to put together the components and you're just always learning. So I always feel like I have this like childhood perspective because there's so many new things that I get to look at day to day. And that in itself is, I think, hands down my favorite thing. Whenever I talk to um, atmospheric scientists, I'm always in awe of their work because understanding the atmosphere and the climate um, is like trying to decipher a mechanical clock where the gears and the cogs are constantly changing shape and the entire clock itself is changing shape. Uh, but talking to you today, I realized that the ocean's in there too. It's throwing a bunch of cogs <laughs> at the atmospheric and the, the climate uh, uh, problem and model. Um, so it's it's overwhelming for me, um, but I'm glad that you enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it can be overwhelming. I, I can, I mean, there are days where I am super overwhelmed and stressed out. It's very easy to 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 end up like that um, and to get in that that place. Um, but it's all kind of beautiful at the same time, like how it is so complex and the atmosphere, um, the land, the ocean, it all connects, but they all have their like own integral um parts and components so yeah i mean it is complex nonetheless <laughs> you may have just answered this but um what's the worst or the most challenging part of your research <laughs> um it is aside from the seasickness <laughs> yes aside from the seasick um i would say it's feeling like you never know enough that's the other side to this coin. You're constantly learning, but you never feel like you know enough. Um, when I, whenever you put together another piece and you think you're moving forward, you find that there's another statistical test or there's another math equation or there's another method that you have to learn for the very first time and you have to teach yourself that. So the learning curves never stop. And I would say 
I wouldn't say I'm like, I don't not like it, but I would say it's the most challenging and can be the most frustrating um, part of all of it is that you have to, you have to be like tenacious and you have to be determined because there will be so many things that you don't know how to do and you just have to learn how to do them in order to answer the question you're trying to answer. <laughs> so yeah, it's difficult. I think it's good that that's the the most challenging part of your work uh, for you. I've gotten into the most trouble when I've thought I knew it all and um, didn't realize there was a whole other layer that uh, I should have known or should have known that I, I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. I certainly think that um, if you would have asked me that in undergrad or like, again, even five years ago where I don't think, it, you know, I would have been perplexed that I was here today, but I probably would have had a different answer because I thought I knew a lot then. Um, the the paradox that when you go into a PhD program, you feel dumber than ever is so, like, it's so true. I, I certainly feel like that, but I think it's just the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. I've also heard that when you go into your undergrad or PhD, you start to learn that everything you learned at lower levels of education was all wrong. And you have to relearn it all over again. <laughs> yes. I, um, you know, I was talking about this with one of my lab mates recently is that my, the one statistics course I had in my undergrad, um, the, the prof just like was about to retire and like, I don't know, the class was very easy A and everyone signed up for it because it was easy A. Did I learn anything? No. Has that done a disservice for me now? Yes. <laughs> and so the perspective change of like, you know, how you realize those those courses and those the the learning opportunities that maybe you didn't take advantage of do affect you later on. And when people say, oh, I'm never going to use calculus again, well, you might, you might. <laughs> and also sometimes you just have to, in a sense, teach um, teach something that someone can understand. You can't teach the whole world uh, right off the bat to someone. Uh, I've certainly des designed lessons for children where you know, tenured faculty hear that and they groan and they say, oh, but you're forgetting this, this and this. And I say, but you can't teach that to a child. Um, you can't teach that to an undergrad. Uh, they have to get the basics first, and then they'll learn all the nuance, uh, which show that technically what you were told before is incorrect. Uh, but you got the gist enough that you can now move on to the more uh, intricate knowledge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, talking to kids about science is actually, I think I'd be more fearful to talk to them than I would some some faculty because they do ask the questions that um that force you to explain something in very plain English and it makes you question do I actually know oh, yeah. this <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good practice so I applaud you for that thanks now I'm curious um do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities and if so has that impacted your work or research you touched on this earlier, but yeah, I, for the most part, I am, I'm a very privileged person. Um, I would say I'm not, 
off the bat, I would say, no, I don't necessarily belong to underrepresented communities, but at the same time, I am a woman in science with disabilities um, and first generation. And so, yeah, in a way, um, I do kind of associate myself with those communities. But the thing about being a woman in science and the good thing that I'm seeing more um, just lately is that when I'm part of a workshop or um, a convening or a conference, I I went I spoke at a conference uh, like four years ago, and I was one of three women in the room of sixty men, and it was so intimidating. But even in such a short period of time, I see that uh, women are almost becoming the majority in these rooms, and so that is amazing. Um, so yeah, that's why I kind of like step back um, with regards to that. But in a sense, I do want to say that I still come from a very privileged place. Um, I am a blonde hair, white American that speaks English, and that is very privileged. So yeah, in that way, I feel like I have to explain that too. Well, I'm glad that women are, um, or the balance is balancing out. I've also noticed that women tend to be, um, it, it, the women in science tend to form communities um, and be very protective of one another. Yeah, yeah, they do. I, um, a lot of women that I've had the the chance to to meet and that I've had um, mentor me have just been incredible. And had it not been for them, I don't think I would be here. So it's it's wonderful to have that supportive network. Do you feel like oceanography is really open and welcoming, or is it more closed off and insular? I think it depends. Um, I think it's hard to answer that question um, in a broad stroke, but there are so many. What part of oceanography or community you end up with largely depends on your research focus. And what I have to say about my own and with regards to the Southern Ocean oceanography community is that it's been very open. Um, it's very welcoming. And one thing that's been amazing is it's a lot of the people that I, I work with or talk to that have been in science for a long time that want to hand the mic to the early career researchers and want to hand it to the underrepresented communities because they have, quote, said, I've already voiced all of my ideas. I know you have ideas, so it's your turn to speak up. And I mean, that just blew my mind to, to be welcomed in that way. So, so I guess I, I will rephrase. If I were to answer that in a, in a broad stroke, I would say yes, but it depends. <laughs> Sounds like they're both open and insular. Uh, yeah. Once yeah. you're in, or it's easy to get in, and once you're in your family, yes, they yes. look after you. Yep. Good. Yep. One thing that we've all had to deal with this the past two years now uh, has been the pandemic. How has it impacted your work, or has it? Um, so the expedition that I brought up was actually originally scheduled for last year, 
Um, that got moved because of COVID, understandably. Um, and it, just as far as immigrating from America to, to Canada for the program was a little bit of a struggle, but I was still able to work from home and maintain my coursework and, and move forward in my program. So thankfully, I haven't had many setbacks. Um, I'm actually, I don't know if I would be the only person to say this. That was, you know, that's part of the expedition, but I'm actually kind of glad that it was pushed a year because if I would have had to do that in the first two months of my program, I think I, whew, that would have tossed me into a lot. So, um, yeah, it's all in all, um, I've, I've been fortunate that it hasn't impacted me in such a negative way. As someone born in Canada, I've, uh, I've rarely looked for opportunities outside the country because I'm terrified of all that bureaucracy that goes with immigrating um, to another country. And during a pandemic would be a complete nightmare. So I'm impressed. Yeah, my study visa took like eight months to go through. And yeah, it was chaotic. It was it was stressful, but it all worked out. Now, you've painted a very fascinating picture of, uh, I guess, environmental oceanography. Um, if anyone's listening right now, what experience or courses or, or background would you uh, suggest they pursue if they want to follow in your footsteps or in your flipper steps? <laughs> <laughs> um, I would tell them that to take some statistics courses in their undergrad. <laughs> um, start coding. Learning learning a language um, is absolutely necessary. I, I started learning a coding language like pretty much when, when I started my PhD, and that's a huge learning curve. So if you can get ahead of that, that's great. Um, but aside from coursework besides you know taking the obvious like biology you know those science core classes and math classes one thing that is really really important is to seek out professors that will mentor you or if it's not even professors just if there's a speaker that comes to your school and you are inspired by them email them they might email you back and they may offer to mentor you. It's, I can't tell you how many people I like cold called or cold emailed asking how they got to where they got today and, or got to where they are. And almost all of them emailed me back and all of them had something to say. Um, that was huge for me. And, and that was, you know, as a first generation, because I was looking for help in all of the ways and these people will will kind of be hopefully like a guiding light in your career and yeah having those relationships is is really important. I 110% agree uh, which I'm sure your stats prof would hate to hear me say um, <laughs> 110%. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm usually a very shy person myself, uh, but reaching out to them, to strangers, uh, does often yield great results. Yeah. 
Yeah. I've been shocked how many people have said, I'd love to help. Yeah. Yes. People are, people, I think, inherently want to help. And also, if you email someone and ask about how they got to where they are, I mean, everyone kind of likes to talk about themselves. So, so it's, I mean, and you know, if, if they want to help you move forward and that's amazing. And I try to practice that now with like undergrads that I'm mentoring and I try to give people the opportunities that I was given. Um, because that's, that's how people learn. That's how people move forward. And that's how people, uh, retain the passion that they do. Chances are, if they're inspiring in a lecture, uh, they're a good person. Yeah, yeah. You feel like a boob when you send out the email, but... <laughs> I know, I know. I'm just like, okay, I'll send this to the ether and we'll see if it comes back. Yeah. And then later that night, you kick yourself. <laughs> yeah. Like, how dare I? Yeah. And then the next you day, know, there's a response in your inbox. Yeah. And some people may give you some some responses or insights that kind of take you back like I had one conversation with someone that um was very forward and she said to me she goes you need to stop being a cash cow I said what do you mean by that she goes stop taking free work you have your bachelor's degree this is after my bachelor's I couldn't get a job I was thinking like okay I need how how do I get into this field and from that moment when she said that, I started asking for money. And and I never did free work again. And um, I just assumed that I had to do the free work. And having her say that, you know. So, yeah, you you might get some new insights that you didn't even think about. Well, you're doing free work now. <laughs> so, the, so thank you <laughs> yeah, for breaking your rule. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I really enjoy this. Uh who were some of those mentors? Um, so my past advisors, I, Chris Peterson is a department head at Loyola that really guided me in my undergrad. He saw past my, my gra bad grades and saw what I was capable of. And still to this day, that means the world to me. Um, Jerry Burgess and Anand Ganandeskan, the the gentleman I worked with at Hopkins, those two are pivotal in, in where I am and have always inspired me. But then there's, there's these three women that I have to name because these are people that I cold emailed or I went up to after a lecture and poked them on the back and said, hey, can I chat with you? Amy Moss, Cassandra Brooks, and Nadine Johnston are incredible women that have guided me simply because they just wanted to help me and because of their kind words and how you know what they told me how I should what my next steps should be how I should prepare I mean yeah they they really changed a lot of things for me and so I I try to embody a lot of the the way that they treated me and how I want to treat people. I can tell that you've uh, yeah taken on those values. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. Now you are still uh, fairly uh, at the beginning of your career. 
Um, I want you to look toward the end of your career. What would you like to have as your professional legacy? Um, a previous colleague asked me this one time, and it is it was the first time I actually thought about it. So I'm I'm glad that I thought about it in the past and and have a prepared answer today. Um, even though it's a pretty loaded question. <laughs> but I I mean it kind of stems from what I was saying um about those values. And I really just hope that my efforts in the space I take up, um, the work I do, I hope that it is done, it's seen as kind, honest, and dependable work. Um, I always want to be someone that someone feels like they can they can come to, but not someone they can walk all over. <laughs> I have boundaries. I have boundaries. Um, but I I want to be the person that people know that they I I reach out my hand for them and I will help them and I'll and I'll I'll try my hardest even if I don't really feel like I know what I'm doing but I will try. Wonderful. I think you've already achieved that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Daniel. Looking in the broader sense, um, the field that a person enters at the beginning of their uh, career can often be completely different by the time that they retire. The world is changing at a lightning pace, uh, not just uh, physically, uh, as you're studying, but also uh, socially. Where do you see oceanography going? And what advice do you have for young people to anticipate some of those changes? That's a really good question. Um, everything is kind of going online. Uh, there's even a lot, there's Fieldwork is even changing in the way that, especially for Southern Ocean, it's very expensive. It's rather unsustainable to to go to the Southern Ocean and collect samples for research. So there's a lot of push to um, do the work necessary to target very specific things before you go out in the field. Um, so that's all to say, maybe fieldwork will be a lot less of a component of oceanography in the future. I'm not sure. So a way to get ahead of that is, again, with the coding, <laughs> modeling. Um, you know, these models are being used in everything. So if you can educate yourself on, on models, and it's especially important for oceanography and any climate science, um, I think you'll always be relevant in that way because then you can work from your home, from your laptop, and you have a lot more opportunities in that way. I heard from another researcher that there's a lot of uh, sharing of um, data or specimens harvested, uh, not only to lessen the environmental impact, but also uh, to cut down on the number of journeys. Yes, yes. And there is... It, it blows my mind when I learn about how much data is collected but is not used um, or is an open access. Um, so I think and I hope that it's science is moving towards a place where things are becoming more um, accessible. And so it allows a lot more people to get involved and not so insular. Sounds like curators. They collect a lot. <laughs> and then always mean to get around to studying it. 
um, but it just sits around for decades <laughs> in many cases. <laughs> Leaving a job for the next person, I guess. <laughs> well, Alexis, um, th- those are all my questions. Did I miss anything or did you want to add anything before I let you go? Um, no, that was lovely. Thank you. I, I guess I just want to say uh, thank you for having me and thank you for this opportunity. Um, it's lovely to share my experiences and I I hope that it can only positively impact others. You've been an inspiration today and an eye-opener as well. Uh, so thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast, or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.